Welcome back to the program. It's amazing sometimes how simple ideas get lost in the big picture. Back in 1923, President Warren Harding proposed a federal department to look after the nation's health, education, and welfare. The department was finally created in 1953 by Eisenhower. In 1979, education was spun off and we created the Department of Health and Human Services. Clearly, as a nation, we've long understood the connection between health and human services. Yet the way our health care system has evolved, preventive care and human services have been almost abandoned as part of the health care enterprise. Today, we spend more money per capita on health care than any other nation. Yet our outcomes are near the bottom. How did this happen, especially when we seem to understand all along that there was a connection between the health and the welfare of our people. Is the fault in our government, our doctors, our philosophy, or in ourselves? My guests, Elizabeth Bradley and Lauren Taylor, set out to try and find out. The result is their new book, The American Healthcare Paradox, Why Spending More is Getting Us Less. Elizabeth Bradley is a professor of public health at Yale, the faculty director at its Global Health Leadership Institute, and master at Banford College. She was previously director of the Health Management Program and co-director of the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Studies Program at Yale and served as administrator of Massachusetts General Hospital. Lauren Taylor studies public health and medical ethics at Harvard's Divinity School, where she is a presidential scholar. She was formerly a program manager at the Yale Global Health Leadership Institute. It is my pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Bradley and Lauren Taylor here to talk about the American healthcare paradox. Elizabeth Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jeff. Great to have you here. Elizabeth, start with you. I want to talk first about the baseline numbers, what we're spending as a a percentage of GDP in this country on health care and where we stand with respect to outcomes compared to other Western nations. Thanks very much. We're spending just under 18% of our GDP in the United States on health care. This translates into about $8,000 per person. If we compare that to the average spending in pretty much all of the other high-income countries in Western Europe and Scandinavia, the, the people we would benchmark to, it's about double. In terms of our outcomes, we look across 34 of these high-income countries, what's known as the OECD countries, we end up being 24th, 25th, 28th ranked in terms of our outcomes such as maternal mortality, infant mortality, life expectancy, uh, early premature death, some of the large outcomes that we care a lot about. Additionally, we also rank very low in terms of the number of disabled days we have, the uh, prevalence of adult-onset diabetes, prevalence of heart disease, prevalence of colon cancer. We're really, our outcomes are just not as good. Lauren, talk a little bit about how your research on this project evolved. And, you know, we hear so much today in the healthcare debate about bending the cost curve and bringing some of the costs of healthcare down. Some of it seems, as you start to look at some of these examples and some of these cases that you both detail in the book, some of it seems so simple in terms of ways in which preventative care and preventative actions within the social services framework would deal with some of these costs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, you do hear so much talk about trying to bend that cost curve. And really what that do, that's doing is not taking us down in the absolute percent of GDP that we spend on healthcare, but really just trying to curb that rate of growth. So we're still generally 
growing as a healthcare sector. You know, we're north of 17% now, and I don't really expect that to come down unless we take some really bold actions. And so I think, as you say, it's so intuitive, and as you spoke about so beautifully in your introduction, we have known for so long as a country that so many of these kind of social, behavioral, environmental factors are hugely influential on health. I mean, intellectually, we've known it. The evidence base has been very strong. You know, they say 60% of premature deaths can be linked to behavioral, social, and environmental factors, whereas only something like 10% are linked to medical care. And yet we just haven't been able to seem to implement that perspective into policy. And I think there are some really good reasons for that that we can talk about. Um, It's certainly a simple concept, but it's a very tough thing to operationalize, or at least with the American approach that we have taken, it's been very tough to operationalize. Talk about that, Elizabeth. Why it has been so tough, not so much in, in the actual process of trying to do it, but in the philosophical idea that we need to do it, first of all. The philosophical idea is really a challenge. One of the main issues that we face is when you think about uh, medical care as one of the determinants of one's ultimate health, it's a pretty individualistic thing. You can take control of that. You can say yourself, I'm going to go see my doctor, and it feels controllable. It feels like something the that sort of aligns with our great individualism in the American public, that, you know, I've got this problem, I'm going to privately go to my physician, he's going to or she's going to fix it. How different that is from thinking what's really driving the way I my health feels is where I work, where I live, how my housing is, what are the parks around, am I exercising enough, do I have social relationships that are supportive in my life? Those all of a sudden become, okay, this is complicated. How do I really, it's a system now, and it involves other people, and I might even have to act collectively to do something about this. That's philosophically in a whole, it's really a second language for the American public to think collectively, how do we take care of our health, as opposed to sort of the quick fix. I'll go take this pill, or I'll go see my doctor, and it will be done. And I do think you're right to call it a sort of philosophical or cultural approach that's challenging. It's more than just logistics. It really is a sense that that we have medicalized everything, that we've taken all of the problems that are in this broad framework we've been talking about and made them medical problems. Some have argued that. I think it's a little bit of an overstatement. It's important to understand there has been medicalization of some problems. We've been depending on a medical care system to address some of the social, cultural, economic, behavioral problems we have. That's true. We also have to look at the other side. You know, we've gotten a lot of good things from this medicalization. It's been tremendously expensive. But we do have, um, you know, if you're a diabetic, you are going to get the highest, highest technical quality care for that. If you need a kidney transplant, you're going to get it fast, and it's going to be very high quality. Knee replacements, we do that better than any other country. So there are avenues that our money is really paying off. It's just not paying off if you look at a society's overall, their health outcomes, you know, their life expectancy, you know, some of these broad prevalence of these illnesses, and that's where we're really falling short. Lauren, talk a little bit about how other Western nations are dealing with this, some of the things they're doing differently, and the kind of outcomes they're seeing as a result. 
So when we looked to the global community and we looked at these rankings, the OECD rankings that the U.S. always seems to do so poorly in, we found that the real stars of the global community were actually Scandinavian countries. So this is Norway, Sweden, Denmark. Um, and so we went and visited, and we spoke to policymakers and voters and some healthcare providers about how their approach was different. And what they told us was, you know, in contrast to the U.S. approach, where we see healthcare as something that's really driven by the free market, it's a good or a product, in many cases the same way that other widgets are goods and products to be purchased and the price is set kind of by the invisible hand, if you will. Um, social services, on the other hand, in the U.S. are often considered something that the government allocates and pays for with some nonprofit built in. In Scandinavia, they said, no, we see these two things as two halves of the same whole. And I will say that the government really does take accountability for both. Um, they do a lot of local budgeting in a pooled fashion where provinces can get a pot of money and decide how they want to spend it, whether they want to prioritize the health care spending or whether they think some of the upstream determinants of health are really a better investment. Um, and so I think we did learn a lot from them. It was about centralizing accountability. And that doesn't necessarily mean that when we come back to the United States, we need to centralize accountability in the government the way those Scandinavian countries do. But I do think it highlights the importance of having an entity that says, I am responsible for health, um, and pinpointing where that responsibility lies. When we look at this, Elizabeth, we see, and perhaps it is, it is no accident whatsoever, when we look at educational outcomes around the world, and we look at the PISA testing, and what countries are doing well there, we find it's in many cases these same Scandinavian countries. Talk a little about that. I think what Lawrence said exactly, is exactly right. The Scandinavian countries uh, do take a look at these different services holistically. So, for instance, it wouldn't be surprising if their educational outcomes are better because they also are thinking about the health aspects of being able to learn, just as we would argue that education itself can really help mitigate some sort of illnesses and mitigate um, some poor health behaviors. Similarly, it's sort of a virtuous circle that one who is healthy can learn better and one who, you know, is learning better can keep themselves healthy. So that holism that we see in Scandinavia and we see less of, as you started with your introduction, we have more fragmentation in the United States. The holism is really starting to look as if it pays off. It's interesting, though, Elizabeth, that we have our own kind of laboratories in the United States because if we look at this, as you talk about in the book, on a state-by-state basis, we see this difference in outcomes within the broader framework we've been talking about. Absolutely, and the states are going to give us great information as time goes on, and they are allowed to do more and more experimentation. The states right now are very involved with allocating the social services and more and more are, you know, being allowed to experiment in terms of health services. And some states are starting to do very exciting things. Vermont, Massachusetts, of course, Hawaii for a very long time has done exciting things. I also think certain cities and counties are starting to think a little bit more holistically how can we all be made better off if we just coordinated better across these sectors. This starts to mirror what we see in Scandinavia, but in an American way here, where it will really emerge from uh, both states, communities, counties, 
and use both the private sector and the for and the nonprofit sector. You tell an interesting story. I don't remember if it was in the book or in your New Yorker article about uh, the Ocean Park Community Center in Santa Monica. It's a small story, but it's so emblematic. Lauren, talk about that. Sure, I love speaking about Ocean Park Community Center because they are just, I think, a great model. Um, and really what they did, the community center is in Santa Monica, and they have for a very long time served a really wide range of community needs, mostly for kind of a vulnerable population of chronically homeless people, but also victims of domestic abuse, uh, folks who have substance abuse challenges. They really know this community. And what they were finding when they were speaking to community partners like local hospitals, paramedics, police officers, was that some of the community that they were serving were kind of frequent flyers, if you will, in the hospital. They were people who came in um, often several times a month. They stayed for maybe a night or maybe just a few hours. But each time they went, they were racking up considerable medical bills. You know, you can't go to an emergency department these days and not accrue several thousand dollars for the cost. And these were costs that often were going reimbursed. The system had no one to pay for them because these people weren't enrolled in an insurance program. And so the hospital and the community center actually set up an alliance, and they decided that, okay, now when people come into the hospital, the hospital will actually contact Ocean Park Community Center, and Ocean Park Community Center will make sure that they oversee the discharge, and they will receive them at the community center. They will get them enrolled with primary care, and they will really help these people get back on their feet so that they don't have to cycle right back into the hospital again. And this alliance, we detail it more in the book, I would encourage folks to read it, um, actually wound up saving considerable costs for the hospital. It was something like $300,000 in just the first year with a very small cohort of patients that they were really focusing this, this partnership model on. So I think this really gives us a lot of hope that, you know, we're not just talking about a pie-in-the-sky idea, oh, wouldn't it be nice if everyone worked together, This is actually um, a model that can create tremendous value for money. Elizabeth, talk a little bit about the medical community itself in in this context we've been discussing. We talk a lot about it in terms of public policy, in terms of human services. Where does the medical community fit into this equation? We spent a lot of time in researching this book and talking to frontline medical providers uh, and, of course, read uh, enormous amount that has been reported about how frontline medical providers are feeling about the current system. And of course, it's a diverse group, so it would be hard to generalize. But again and again and again, at the frontline, primary care physicians, internists are experiencing exactly what the data, the quantitative data would show us. That is, that they are overburdened. The patients are overwhelmed by their social and economic context and challenges. They have medical problems, but some of these other problems are even bigger. So the frontline physician is often faced with the issue of, how can I do my job? I'm a physician, but how do I take care of somebody? How do I get the insulin to somebody when they're living on a park bench? Now, that would be an example of someone they were taking care of who, of course, had economic challenges, but we heard this even among clinicians that were taking care of uh, people with more assets in the sense that a lot of what might be going on that's driving, you know, lower back pain, et cetera, et cetera, could have to do with really the type of work somebody is doing, the kinds of stress they face, the kinds of food they're eating, the degree to which they've built up their other musculature. 
And so these non-medical pieces, clinicians are very aware that they're driving a lot of what clinicians see, and they're frustrated that this is not only a medical challenge in front of them. So in many ways, I think that the theory of the book really did come forth again in how the medical community reflected it back to us and what their experience was. Are we learning anything from the educational community in situations like Harlem Children's Zone, for example, where we see a holistic approach solving a variety of problems? No question. I think it's really the exact same, um, it, it's the exact same coin in the sense of getting people primed, particularly in these early childhood preparation programs, so that the school goes better, the school life goes better. They're in a place to be able to learn. And there are, if you will, services around the strictly academic services that make it possible to actually use the academic um, programming in its very best way. The analog, I think, is identical. How do you create the patient in their very best way? You wrap around what is needed from the social support standpoint so the medical care services can actually be effective when they're used. Lauren, talk a little bit about nutrition, the role it it obviously plays in all of this, and the ways in which it has been addressed in certain cases and the way that perhaps it can be addressed going forward. Sure. I think nutrition is actually... um kind of an easy win for us in the sense that it is something people are familiar with. There's great evidence that nutrition and dietary behaviors impact health in a very strong and and um, well-researched way. So, you know, I think it's just absolutely key. Um, I think it can actually be a model for many of the other parts of our lives that we have in some ways neglected to appreciate the role that they play in health. Um, things like air quality, things like the amount of sleep we get. You know, nutrition is one place where everyone has kind of gotten on board and said, yes, this is important, but I think there are others where we could similarly engage and see real health benefit from it. Elizabeth, talk a little bit about fear, particularly on the part of patients, and how that enters into it and the things that it drives people to do that aren't necessarily the most proactive. Yeah, Fear is fear and anxiety uh, it can be an enormous driver, and you're highlighting something that we try to highlight in the book, which is some of this medicalization comes about from the demand patients put on their clinicians. It doesn't all come from a medical care system trying to make more money, not at all. It also comes from exactly what you said, the fear and anxiety that someone has, and we have a great story in the book of some parents of a child who has headaches, and they're afraid this child has a brain tumor or has an aneurysm or has some horrible, you know, nervous system problem. And they demand workups of every single kind you can possibly imagine, $250,000 of workups. You know, ultimately, this is a teenage child who's probably not sleeping enough, not eating great, and is a little anxious and is getting headaches, stress headaches. But there's so much that caters to us. It's almost sometimes we have too much information. It's a bad thing of all the things that could go wrong that are very, very rare. But nonetheless, they really drive an insatiable demand for more testing. And more testing, we find, can really have some negative impact, not just on cost, but things can go wrong, of course, when you enter into over-medicalizing what would otherwise be a health health behavior problem, really. Mm -hmm. One of the things you talk about, Elizabeth, is that administrative spending in our system is so high. 
And yet that administrative spending is not really or not seemingly addressing some of these issues that we're talking about. Discuss that a little bit. The administrative spending in our system is usually the way we think of uh, how much of the healthcare dollar of that 18% of GDP is going to patient care versus going to administration, profit, et cetera, marketing, et cetera. And there are different numbers in the United States, but ours tends to be a little bit higher uh, than those that are in a single-payer system. And, of course, people get frustrated by that. One of the nice things about the Accountable Care uh, the sorry, Affordable uh, Care Act is that there are actually going to start to be caps on this uh, amount of administrative spending. And I think that will make the American public feel better and uh, about the system, that there isn't maybe as much what people might see as waste. Um, however, I'm a little worried too much focus on that is not the total answer, really. Also looking at what is waste that actually goes to patients, that is when too much medical care is used or medicalized as opposed to another approach upstream that could have actually probably saved subsequent medical care costs. Coming back to statistics, Lauren, talk a little bit about some of these statistics that you lay out in the book in terms of the amount of illness and death in many cases that are caused by social, environmental, and behavioral factors versus some of the other things we're talking about. Sure. This evidence base is really quite strong and impressive, and I, we took actually great pains to really get a, get a full command of it and report it as best we could in the book. So, again, I, I think a more detailed analysis is there. But, you know, 70, 80 percent of stroke... Um, is related directly to behavioral uh, factors. And so, again, on the nutrition point, you know, um, I just wanted to circle back to that and give a concrete example of the ways in which, you know, type 2 diabetes in many cases can be resolved by changes in nutrition, and yet we so often decide, no, let's reach for the insulin. Or we say, oh, I have heart uh, heartburn. That's really linked to nutrition, what we eat, and instead of saying, okay, I'm going to eat differently, we say, oh, I want the Prilosec. So the evidence base is very strong that, you know, these factors have real impact, and yet we continue to kind of ignore the fact that these are the root causes and instead come back, as I said, time and again to medicine, medication, and our physician for resolution. Elizabeth, I want to talk about the fact that while we've discussed a lot of areas around a a poorer population, that this is very much a middle-class issue as well. Yes, we're made great pains in the book to not sort of castigate this um, system that we have as just not being good service for people who are poor. It's not really just about the safety net and social programs for very poor people. Absolutely not. If we think about the middle class or high-income people and you, you think about our own way in which we deal with the medical care system, isn't it important if we have, you know, sort of stomach pain to really think holistically about what are the social pieces that could be causing me this? Even as we look at our health behavior, all the data on smoking, smoking is not an individual choice only. Certainly the individual ultimately has to choose, but we smoke a lot more if our friends smoke. We are more likely to be obese if our friends are obese. It's very much a socially, our health at any income level is a combination, not just of our own doing, but of the social environment we live in. That's a point we're really trying to raise awareness on and change the discourse about health in the United States. 
Any time, Elizabeth, that there's a discussion about some of these things that we're talking about, about all these various aspects of health and welfare, even of education, the debate between public and private always sort of rears its head. Talk about where that debate fits into this larger framework we're discussing. You're so right. And people very often look at social services and just say, oh, that's public sector things. But just as to the last question, we really have to look at these sort of social determinants of health. A lot of those are things that are produced in a private sector, that are produced by our own choices as people. What kind of a house are we going to get? What kind of exercise are we going to get? Where? What kind of gym are we going to go to? So these things are not all public sector services. It's more important to think, are they things that address social determinants, economic determinants, where we live, walk, play, um, you know, uh, eat, et cetera? Are, is that the domain of uh, determinant we're talking about, or is it medical? I think that distinction is a lot more important than is it provided by the public sector or is it provided by the private sector. As we look throughout the world in high-income countries, all countries have picked different approaches. Is it going to be delivered in private or public or a mix? And that ends up not being the distinguishing factor in terms of what drives their disparate health outcomes. What drives it more is how much are they really spending in medical care versus how much are they spending in their social services. You mentioned, Elizabeth, administrative costs before. Are there other aspects of the Affordable Care Act that address some of these paradoxical issues that we're talking about? I think there really are, and I think there are ways, there, there are reasons to be optimistic. The ACA sets a platform by which we will, as a country, begin to understand what are we really spending on health care. They're no longer going to be all the hidden costs because everybody will have to have insurance. Once everybody has insurance, then we can really understand how are we managing this dollar and can we align our spending with what really is the most cost-effective. At the end of the day, if we implement it right, it's going to give us the policy tools to spend not more, but spend more wisely. Elizabeth Bradley, Lauren Taylor, the book is The American Healthcare Paradox, Why Spending More is Getting Us Less. It's just out from public affairs. Elizabeth, Lauren, I thank you both for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.